Let's turn to uh, Genesis 13. I'll be reading the uh, entirety of the chapter. It's not that long. Genesis uh, chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we pause in our morning to join together in prayer, to come before you in this time with your word open in front of us. We are desirous to hear from you. We pray that you indeed would minister to us in this time, that we would learn about who you are and about this salvation that we have in Christ, that we would learn something of ourselves, that we would learn what you have for us 
from this passage. And so we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of our passage today, if, uh, if you have a bulletin in your hand, you can look at the uh, notes there and the outline. The title is, Can Abram Trust God's Providence? We enter into a new phase here, really, of uh, a new step in Abram's life, and, and uh, we're going to see the, uh, the aspect or the issue of God's providence at work in this section. And I thought before I go too much farther, I ought to define what providence is. And so we're going to talk about that uh, just a little bit. Uh, I have here a definition from the Westminster Confession that gives a really good definition. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a a great definition. It's a, a little bit long, and so I have a shorter one here. The doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are ruled not by chance, not by fate, but by God who governs all things according to the counsel of His will. That's providence. And providence usually is something that we can see when we look back on the events of our lives or back on the events that we're discussing. We can recognize God's providential hand in our past, in our own history, maybe as you think about your own life and maybe how you came to Christ, maybe the, the, uh, the journey that you've been on in your life. And you can look back now from, from our day and reflect on your past, and you can see God was really at work. In this decision that, I, that was very hard for me to make, or in this thing that happened to me, or, or in this relationship that went south, or, or this job situation that I thought was going to be fabulous, ended up being lousy, and so these other situations came about from it. And now from the vantage point of today, you can look back and see God was at work, even in those things, the hard things and the great things. God was accomplishing His purposes, and so we can look back and we can see that. And It's often difficult, though, to look at our lives right now and say, you know, today's date is such and such, and, and uh, I, can, I can tell what God is doing. God is providentially at work. I mean, we believe that. It's often hard, though, to identify how when you're at the new job that you thought was going to be wonderful, and it's awful or this relationship is just in the process of going south, or there's something hard happening in your life, you're wrestling with health maybe in ways you never have before, and you don't have perspective to look and see what exactly God is doing. But as we study passages like this one, and really uh, elsewhere in Scripture as well, where we learn about God's providence, we take comfort knowing that God really is in control, though I so often have no idea what He's doing. I know He's accomplishing His purposes. I know He's he's working all things together for the good of His children. I know those things, but I couldn't tell you how. If I had to write a list of, you know, our our world events right now or what's going on with flooding in Pakistan or or maybe economic issues or or political issues or family issues, I couldn't tell you. But we know when we read Scripture, 
the Bible tells us about who God is, that we learn what He is like, and though we can't see His invisible hand at work, yet it is nevertheless at work, and we can take comfort. And so today, really, the question is, in Abram's life, can Abram trust God's providence? And so uh, we talked last week uh, about the end of chapter 12 there in Genesis, and and Abram and, and uh, Sarai and down in Egypt and all the debacle that that was. And uh, we saw Abram fall flat on his face and we saw God have to rescue them by uh, really miraculous means in, uh, in sending these plagues on Pharaoh, etc., etc. And so Abram didn't really come off too well in last week's uh, account. What about when we turn to this week? What about when we turn to chapter 13? Well, in chapter 13, we see really a new thing going on. We see Abram really returning to the land, and the question when he returns to the land is where to put all the blessing? Where to put all this blessing that they've, that they've accumulated? He shows up, he's going back into the land, and he's wealthy, and Lot's wealthy, and we're going to see how that will end up being uh, a little bit of a difficulty there's a, an interesting word here in the Hebrew. Uh, it's not a super important word, but it's used in the previous account, and it's used in this account as well. In chapter 12, uh, the word was used uh, to talk about the, the, the famine in the land. The famine was severe. It was heavy. And that's the word that was used there, and it's a, it's a normal word that, that means that, kaved is the word. And, and, uh, but here in the beginning of chapter 13, we see that same word appear in a different context, and it has to do with Abram's wealth. So the idea is that in the previous episode, the, the land was weighed down with famine, as it were. And here, when Abram returns to the land, and the famine's been dealt with and all that, Abram returns to the land, he has become weighed down with wealth. He's got stuff and livestock and riches galore, he and Lot both. And so you've got that same kind of idea. Now it's going to be a little bit problematic, right? So Abram comes back into the land. He's rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeys from the Negev, kind of the dry regions to the south, journeys as far as Bethel, which is where he had been before. It's where he had dwelt before he left the land. And so he goes back to Bethel. He goes to the, to the last place that he had dwelt in when he was in the land. And Bethel isn't just, you know, familiar and, you know, it used to be home and all that stuff. He built an altar there. And he called upon the name of the Lord. And so he's going back not just to a place that's familiar, you know, he knows the streets and he knows how to get around and he knows the neighbors and, and stuff like that, but this is the place where he called upon the name of the Lord. He built an altar. There's a special relationship that he had with God in this place, and he wants to go back there. So you have this notion that the author is giving us here, that Abram is not just returning to the land. He didn't just, you know, change his address and, and his zip code and, and all that kind of stuff, but he, he really wants to go back and, and walk with the Lord again. I mean, he fell flat on his face in Egypt. He, he you know, essentially, it kind of is almost like he tried to marry off his wife to someone else. It was not a good thing. He ends up getting chewed out by a pagan king. His, his, his actions are so bad. And when you get chewed out, rightly so, by a pagan king, as a believer, there's something wrong. 
right? And that's, that's been the, nation, uh, the, the, the notion of Abram's life as he's been down in Egypt. And so he comes back to the land. He goes back to what's familiar, but he goes back to where the altar is. And again, he calls upon the name of the Lord. You see that at the end there of verse 4. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. It's almost like there's a sigh of relief. Whew. Okay, things are kind of back on track a little bit. Right? We took a detour there, and it was, it was awful. We learned all kinds of things we really didn't want to learn. And, and now we're back, and he's calling upon the name of the Lord. It seems like he's renewing his, his faith. He's back in the land. He wants to, he wants to go back to trusting the Lord. All right, let's start over. You know, let's have a, re, a redo of that. And so we see him returning to the land in faith. But we see in verses 5 and 6 that really Abram and Lot have both kind of grown too rich for the land. Verse 5, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Right? So they, they had so much wealth, they didn't have anywhere to put it. Their flocks were so large, their herds were so large that they're trying to find pasture. And they're looking around, and if you've looked at pictures of this land, I mean, you, there's, there's feed there for animals, limited feed. You know, you're not going to pasture too many, and the problem is they had too many to pasture. The land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Anytime you see repeated phrases like that, dwell together, dwell together, you can t- it's kind of a theme. That kind of tips you off to what's going to be the issue here. And this is going to be the problem. They've just got too much wealth for both of them to be together. The land can't support them. They, they're, they're trying to figure out where they're going to pasture all these, all these flocks and herds. And, and uh, so their they're, they're, you know, herdsmen are begin a, going to begin to fight one another. And we see strife arise in the family in verse 7. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Right? And so you've got, you've got a problem where now these two who have traveled together so much, they've spent so much time together, their family, and, and their wealth is growing together as a family, but now it starts to, to be a little bit of strife between their herdsmen. And it hasn't really gotten to the point of strife between Abram and Lot, but that's a danger. That's kind of the next step. That's what's going to happen. And so you see strife in the family here. And, and did you see how verse, verse uh, uh, 7 ended there? At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Okay, this isn't just giving us current events, you know, so that we can kind of place it in the history. Oh, the, the, the time when the Canaanites and the Perizzites both dwelt in the land, was a, that's not what it's about. It's not trying to give that. It's trying to give context for this story. If you've got these two wealthy men with all of their estates, their estate is so big that they can't dwell near one another. The land isn't big enough to support them. And then you throw in the Canaanites, and then you throw in the Perizzites. Right? It's, it's overcrowding in a sense. Right? There are too many uh, people around. So the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites would also have been drawing upon the land. They would have been depleting the land's resources. But even that's really not the big issue. The big issue is that Abram and Lot are strangers. Abram and Lot are foreigners, and they don't fit in. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, they kind of, they understand pagan worship, and they can kind of get along with one another on those terms. And then Abram shows up, and what does Abram do when he gets in town? He builds an altar, and he says, Yahweh is the one true God. 
your gods are all false. <laughs> he calls upon the name of the Lord. I trust the one true God. You're worshiping stone. You're worshiping sticks. What you're worshiping is not a God. I, I don't know what it says. It just said he called upon the name of the Lord. But he's declaring that Yahweh is his God. Yahweh, the one true God, that he is God of gods, that he, have, he is king of kings. He is the one true God. And, and in doing so, no doubt he, he angered the Canaanites angered the Perizzites just a little bit, right? He's saying all these mean things about our religion. He's saying that this Yahweh, this strange God, is the one true God, and we don't like it and, 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 and all of that. And so, well, when you've got Abram being strong and wealthy, and he's got influence, and then you've got Lot, his relative, strong and wealthy and having influence, when they're together, things are good. Right? No one's going to come against them. Like, someone would really have to decide that they wanted to uh, come against them and, and do some harm. But now, if they're fighting with each other, if they're, if they're about to be divided, if they're, if they're fighting with one another, well, maybe the Canaanites and the Perizzites could go over to Lot and say, yeah, that Abraham, he really is a bad guy. Let's join together and let's take him on. Or they can go to Abram and they say, yeah, let's just wipe out the Lot. You see the problem? The, the, the division within the family is going to cause real problems. And so you've got this issue of strife uh, in the family is going to cause a real problem. And the question here in this first uh, paragraph is really what to do with all the blessing. Where to, where to put it all? You know, we're running out of closets to put all of our blessings. We move on to the second paragraph here, and we see that Abram actually has grown a lot. He shows great faith. Look at verse 8. Now remember, this is Abram who was hiding behind his, his wife's skirts in the previous paragraph, okay? And now he says this, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. All right, let's, let's don't do this. Let's don't squabble with one another. Let's figure out how to deal with this. And here's his solution that he proposes. Is not the whole land before you? Look, there, there it all is. If you take the left hand, so he says, separate yourself from me. Let's, let's, let's get far enough apart. We're not going to have problems with our herdsmen and whatnot. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. Right? So here Abram, is the, as the older and the wiser and the more mature man, has proposed a way to make peace with, uh, with Lot, his nephew. And, and the way is, okay, Let's divide up the land if we need to. You go over there all by yourself. You take that whole portion. If you do that, I will go the other way, and I'll take this other portion. But if you decide that you like this best and you decide to go that way, I'll go over here. Have at it, buddy. I'll, I'll go live over here, right? So that he's trying to establish peace. This is a very, very generous offer. But notice Abraham's faith in making that offer. This isn't just, you know, as if, as if we move to a new state or a new place and say, well, if you want to live on, in that town or the north end of town, I'll live on the south end of town or, or whatever, as if it's uh, just a piece of property. This is something that has been promised to Abram and his descendants, and Lot is not one of those. And Abram is willing even to offer up this land that is by rights his or going to be his, and he offers it up. Back in 12.7, we saw the Lord say, to your offspring, I will give this land. 
as he was journeying through the last time. That's the promise that the Lord has, had, had made. But now we have Abram who's willing to, uh, to offer up this land. You would think that a man in his situation, he's been promised offspring. He has no offspring. Uh, he's been promised a land, and he just got back from journeying in Egypt because there wasn't even food in the land that, that God had told him he would give him. You would think he would have a death grip. I am back in the land, and, and, and nothing's going to change nothing. Like I'm, I, You'd think he would have a stranglehold on the land, but he doesn't. He, he offers it up. If, if, if you want to go this way, I'll go the other. If you like that place better, I'll go over here. Let's, let's figure this out lot. And so you see his trust. You see that, that he is uh, trusting in God's provision for him, that God who has made this promise to him, God who has taken him through so much already, God can surely see it through. Now, does he understand how at this point? I don't think so. I think he, he just, he's offering it up. He wants peace, and he's uh, going to trust the Lord for how it's all going to shake out in the end. But nevertheless, it's a very generous offer. And so Lot is standing there, and he's going to consider, am I going to go left, or am I going to go right, uh, what's going to happen? But, but uh, we see kind of uh, what Lot is like in verses 10 and 11. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. Right? So he, he looks, and, and he, he should have been looking at you know, the land, Canaan, but instead he looks kind of to the borderland. It's like out there, and it's kind of you know, it's not, is it, is it part of the land or is it not? Well, it kind of, it's a borderland, and it's out there, but he decides that it looks beautiful. He looks to the Jordan Valley. It's well watered everywhere. This place is green. It's lush, you know, and he's, he's been fighting for pasture land, and so he's thinking, well, there's pasture land right there. That's, that's good quality land. It's, it's well watered like the garden of the Lord. This is like Eden. Like he's looking at this, and the more he thinks about it, the more he thinks it's going to be wonderful. It's like the Garden of the Lord. It's like the land of Egypt. How many times do you read about that in the Bible, by the way, when the people begin to be discontent in the land or in the struggle for the land, they start thinking, eh, things weren't so bad in Egypt. We could go back, right? And he's looking back, and he's thinking, man, remember how the Nile, every year it floods right on time. And it waters all this place, and, you can, and it, it's green, and there's such production. We, we weren't struggling for pasture land at all there. And so he's looking at this land, the Jordan Valley, and he says, it's gorgeous. It's, it's well watered. It's like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar, which is going to come up later on in the Lot story. So apparently the Jordan Valley, and particularly the, the region of Zoar, which they think is to the south end of the Dead Sea, which is just as parched as any place on earth, if you look at it now. But apparently at the time, before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was much greener. And he thought it looked like a good place to move, a good place to uh, raise his, uh, his herds and his flocks. And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed there. He journeyed east. Let's see Lot's choices here. When he's presented with what region of the country would you like to have, he instead looks to a third option, goes to the Jordan Valley, and he makes his decision based upon its wealth and its, uh, how welcoming it was, its, its beauty, uh, the opportunity. 
Those are not bad reasons to choose a place to live, right? But you'll notice that it kind of spells out, it kind of makes clear for us uh, that Lot is choosing based upon external and worldly criteria alone. I've got no problem with moving somewhere because it's beautiful, right? But you need to have some other criteria in there as well. And we've got a pretty extensive list here of Lot's criteria, and they all seem to be the kind of external, kind of, kind of a sensual, kind of worldly. And so this isn't the main point of the passage, but I can't pass this up without making a point of application here. When, when uh, you're considering moving somewhere, and if you're looking to move to a different town, a different state, and, and whatever, because of better job opportunities over here or over there or whatever, find a good church before you go there. Find a good church before you even decide to move there. I think we have it so backwards so many times that we think, well, my job opportunity is taking me over here. Now, if you're in the, if you're in the Navy, you're in the military and you get transferred, okay, that, that is what it is. You do the best you can. You find a good church where you can. I get that, okay? But if you're, you know, just looking at a job opportunity and I could be making more money and get better situation and whatnot over here, and then you move there and then you think, oh, I wonder if there are any churches here. That kind of seems to be how things go. People follow the job opportunity, and then as a second thought or a third or fourth or fifth thought, they think about church. And, and, and I think we get ourselves into trouble a little bit like Lot is about to get himself in trouble when we do that. We should, we should find a good church before we've ever moved there, before we've ever finally decided to move there. If there's no good church within driving distance, find something else because the pastures are not as green as you think they are. That's, that's just in passing. But we learn that from, uh, from Lot's story here, and the, and the plot is about to thicken with him. But did you notice how it said there, right in the middle of verse 11, Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Now, it doesn't say that only because the Jordan Valley is east of where they were standing. Okay? He uses that language on purpose, and particularly in the book of Genesis, journeying to the east means something. We've seen this before when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. They were driven out towards the east, and cherubim were put there with swords to block the entrance in the east. Also, when Cain killed Abel, he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He went away from the presence of the Lord. That's the notion. When you, when you travel east, and in this, the way he's, he's telling us this story, what he wants us to catch from this is, is traveling east means to go away from the presence of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean if you decide to move back east that you're necessarily going away from the presence of the Lord. I mean, I'm from here, so I do tend to think it's better here in the west but that's not, you know, maybe the application we're trying to make here. But, but in the passage right here, what he's arguing is that traveling to the east is like code language for leaving the Lord behind, going away from the presence of the Lord. And finally, if you think about the Tower of Babel, that bastion of haughty rebellion against God, that was in the east in Shinar. And you had all this massive rebellion go on. And so it's like code language. And so here when we read about Lot, we read about him choosing, oh, this great place, and, and it's wonderful. Oh, but he journeyed to the east. Whoops. If I didn't catch it, if I didn't catch the point on the rest, 
When it told me that he journeyed to the east, it really should stick in my mind. Something is wrong here with Lot. And so we see that Lot prefers the, the greener pastures of Sodom. And then look at how it wraps up uh, this uh, selection of the land in 12 and 13. We see a contrast really of the land of promise and the land of curse. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, which is where he was supposed to be, by the way. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Right, so Abram has planted himself. He has settled in the land of Canaan, which is the land God has promised him, which is the land that's going to be his and, and belong to his offspring. That's where he settled. This is the land of promise. That's where he ought to be. And Lot leaves that and goes somewhere else. And he doesn't just go somewhere else. We've already heard a couple of times in the passage the reminder about what is going to happen in Sodom. What Sodom is like. It didn't just have green pastures. It didn't just have you know, a lush landscape or whatever. He says the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, noteworthy in their evil. He wants us to catch this as if we missed it when we passed by it in verse 10. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. As he's describing the land, he's describing what it's like, he's describing uh, what all uh, thought process uh, Lot is going through here as he's choosing the land. It's a, oh, it's well watered and it's beautiful. It's like the garden of the Lord. It's like Egypt. But this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the town to which he was moving. The author wants us to catch this. Now, that event hasn't happened yet, but he's throwing, he's throwing foreshadowing out there right and left. He wants us to catch what is going on here. And so you have in this uh, conclusion of this paragraph here, you've got the land of promise, which is where Abram ends up, and you've got the land of cursing. It's not cursed yet, but it's on the edge. It won't be long. And that's where Lot decides to move. Lot is consorting now with very evil, wicked people, and that should prime us for what's going to happen in that story. Matthew Henry put it this way, in reflecting on this passage and reflecting on the uh, choices that Abram um, put before Lot and then the choice Lot makes, he, he comments that Lot had the paradise, such as it was, but Abram had the promise. And so you're going to see a division, you're going to see a distinction in what's happening here. And there's a point of doctrine before we move on to our third paragraph here. There's a point of doctrine we need to, uh, to come back to. God works even in the desires and the choices of men. The question that we asked at the beginning is, can Abram trust the providence of God? Can, can you imagine if you were like standing there next to Abram, if you were Sarai, or if you were, you know, his scribe, or I don't know, whatever. You're standing next to him, and, and you're listening to him make this deal. And he's saying, all right, Lot, here's the situation. Land's not big enough for the two of us, so we need to separate. So you go one way, I'll go the other. Your choice. You go north, I'll take the south. I know it's dry, I know it's whatever. You go south, I'll take the north. Okay, it's hill country, and I can do that. He lays it before Lot. It's Lot's choice. It's out of Abram's hands. 
He doesn't get to exercise control there. He's now at the mercy of Lot because of the deal that Abram made. But God is at work providentially in this whole situation and in this specific story. The way God is working is in the desires and in the choices of men. That's even the arena that God works. He doesn't just work in the, in the arena of storms and, and, and stars in the sky and, and great nations doing this and that and battles and, and, and winning and losing and stuff like that. He's at work even in the desires and the choices of men, even of men who aren't seeking to honor him. Lot, remember, went east. He went away from the presence of the Lord. And, of course, the most ready example of this would be Genesis 50 and verse 20, where you've got the conversation between Joseph and his brothers, and his brothers are lamenting the fact that they, that they sold him into slavery. I think they're really lamenting the fact that they got caught selling him into slavery. And so they think that now that dad is dead, Joseph's going to kill them. And, and uh, so um, he comforts them and says, don't worry, you meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. God was at work even in your sinful desires and choices in selling me into slavery. God meant those very things. But we see it elsewhere. Uh, for example, in, in Exodus, we see that uh, somehow I cut out the verse here, so I, I can't even tell you where it is. It's in Exodus. It's in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> Maybe you'll recognize it. It's when they're talking about the um, the going down into uh, where the temple is going to be to, uh, to, to celebrate the feast together. And if you live far away, you might have to sell your stuff, take your money and go down there and celebrate there. You're to celebrate all together in the place where the Lord is going to place His name. And this is what He says in this verse that really is in the Bible. I just can't remember offhand what it is. It's uh, Exodus. I'm sorry. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. Right. So the idea is you're going to go into the land, you're going to take possession of the land, and once you have possession of the land, I've kicked out everybody else, I've enlarged your borders. While you're there, he says three times in, in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, the God of Israel, shall go down to where I will place my name, which ends up being Jerusalem. And don't worry, when all your menfolk leave, and the women are left behind, defenseless. They're looking across the river at the bad guys who are always uh, threatening to wage war on you. This is what he says. No one shall covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. How is God going to protect you? When all of the fighting men, all of those who could defend the land, have decided to go down to Jerusalem, Go down to this feast that God has said. How, how is God going to defend the land when it's only the women to protect the place? He says, don't worry. I'll build a giant wall. He doesn't say that. He says, don't worry. I will, I will stand angels around your area so that they'll be scared off. He doesn't say that. What does he say? If you could read the verse, you'd know. <laughs> if anyone finds it, by the way, tell me. I really feel bad. I cut and pasted it and lost it. If anyone has it, tell me loudly. Exodus what? 23. Thank you. Verse what? 
14 through 19. Exodus 23, 14 through 19. Thank you. All right. Now you can look it up and check me. It's in the Bible somewhere. It usually doesn't work, right? Shouldn't preach on that text. (laughs) But here's what's going on. How does God say He's going to protect the people? When all the men who can defend the place are gone, He's not going to erect a giant wall. He's not going to to make storms in the land that are going to drive people out. He's not going to, to, to station angels around the border to scare off the enemy. No, He's going to make it so they will not covet your land. He will work right in their heart so that they'll be like, you know, last year I was thinking it was a great idea to invade, just run across and steal their stuff and take their land. It doesn't seem like a, such a good idea anymore. Well, it just happens to coincide with when all of the men who could have defended the place are down at the feast. You see God working in the desires and the choices of men, even evil men, which is what we read also in Proverbs 21.1, which is in the Bible also. <laughs> Do better, Brennan. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart. And God goes, he works even in that region. God's providence works even in right down into the heart desires of men, even men who don't love him and are not seeking to honor him. Moving on, we'll finish up. God reiterates a promise. God reiterates a promise. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now, what had God said about the place to this point? God has only been speaking to Abram for two chapters, so you don't have to look back very far to figure out all the words that God has spoken to Abram. And when he spoke on this topic, it was back in chapter 12 and verse 7, where he simply said, to your offspring I will give this land. Very short sentence, not a lot of detail in the boundaries, not a lot of detail in, in, uh, in the promise or anything like that, but now... Now that Lot has left, he says, lift up your eyes and look around. Look all the way around. Panorama. He says, everything that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. He gets much more specific. He gets much more thorough. Telling what this promise is going to be. So Abram, the one who came into the land and God said uh, to this land, to, uh, to your offspring, you and your offspring, I'll give this land. And then a famine comes and he leaves the land. And he comes back in and he kind of almost deals away half the land if Lot would have decided to do that. God says, no, all of this, Abram, is yours and will belong to your offspring. So he doubles down. He clarifies. He, he makes clear to Abram, no, I meant here. This is what I mean. And so God promises all the land to Abram, to his offspring, and then he develops even the offspring promise. He says, God will greatly multiply Abram's offspring. Look at verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. 
So he gets more specific, not just about this land, I mean all this. He gets more specific about the offspring. Now, if you look back, what did God said about offspring? Well, to Abram, not much. He said, I'll make you a great nation. And through you, I will bless the nations. He said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. There are implications there, but it's not explicit. It's not really spelled out in detail what all he means there. He's just said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. That's all he said to him on the topic back in the beginning of chapter 1 when he first appeared to him. And here he says so much more. Here he says, count the dust. Go outside, look around, count the dust. See the dust of the ground, the dust of the earth? See how much of it is? If you can count all that, then you can count all your offspring. He gets very specific. He gets very detailed. He, gets, he, he wants to drive home the point to Abram that, that we're, we're not talking small potatoes here. We're talking real abundance. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. So he's developing this initial promise, which was just in kernel form back in 12, and and it's really the call of Abraham out of the land where he was into the land of Canaan, and now in 13, after Abram comes back into the land, and he's shown himself to be faithful. He, He trusts the Lord, though he doesn't have a lot to go on, but he trusts the Lord, and the Lord sweetens the deal for him and says, this will be the the land. I'll give it to you and your offspring forever. And by the way, you will have so many offspring, you won't even be able to count them. And look at Abram's response. Well, the, the finish there of what God says, he says, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Travel around, walk the whole thing. It's like an expression of ownership, of dominion. You'll see Joshua do the same thing. You'll see actually uh, around, around the city when they're first invading and they're marching around Jericho. That's kind of what they're doing, establishing their ownership, saying, this is our land anyway. I can walk where I want. So, verse 18, Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And so, at the conclusion of our story here, we see that once again, Abram is trusting God. He has trusted God, demonstrated his faith all the way through this whole chapter, and in the end, he finishes with another uh, worship service, as it were, where he's calling on the name of the Lord. Yes, the Lord is the one true God. He really is the only God. He is God of gods and King of kings, and he's my God. He calls upon the name of the Lord. So I have a couple of points of application for us here at the end. And the first one, I think, is just following Abram's example here and throw yourself upon God's faithfulness. Abram doesn't have a lot to go on. He doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, explicit promise from God. He's got some words that God has spoken to him. Not a whole lot. And he trusts God. And how much do we have that God has spoken to us? Not just a few words. There are probably many of us who've never read all the words in here. That's how many words God has given us. God is faithful, so believe Him. One, one commentator pointed out something that, that may miss our notice as we read through this passage. He says, the trust or the faith of Abraham matters in these narratives. 
He's, he's noting how faithful Abram is and that it's, it's, it's incredible for him to be able to trust in such, with such uh, stakes and the odds against him that he trusts the Lord in such context is noteworthy. He says, the trust of Abram matters in these narratives, but it does not matter finally, meaning it does not matter ultimately. It's not the biggest thing to see in this passage. What matters finally, what matters ultimately, is the faithfulness of Yahweh to his family. We read through here and we're amazed at Abram, and rightly so. And we ought to be all the more amazed at God who keeps his promises to such a man. He is faithful. And his faithfulness far overshadows Abram's faith. Indicates that Abram's faith is in the right place. But the real hero here, the real thing that is noteworthy to us is the faithfulness of God. And so, throw yourself upon God's faithfulness. Are you, are you in some dire need? Are you in a financial bind? Are you, are you in real need? I don't, I don't just mean, you know, I'm having trouble paying for the, you know, the third car or whatever. I, real need. Are you in real financial need that's, that's tight, that's difficult? My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He will. You may not have the third car. You may not have any cars. But these, these uh, Christians that we're talking about in Pakistan who are uh, not just Christians there, but uh, dealing with the loss of everything in the flood, when, when they get that steel bed, did you see it? It's just a steel frame bed with with some webbing. It's like a lawn chair almost, and that's what they get to sleep on. That's provision. God providing for their needs, and He does that. Are you in some anguish or some pain? Listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So do you need comfort? We were talking about uh, praying for our sisters earlier who are dealing with broken bones and, and extreme pain. And there are many of you that haven't shared those things with us or we haven't talked about today. Do you need comfort? You're going through some anguish, some agony. There's comfort in Christ. There's only Comfort in Christ. Are you anxious? Peter tells us, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So what can you do with this anxiety that you're walking around thinking everything's about to be awful? If it's not awful already, it's going to be tomorrow. I don't understand why and I don't know how. Cast all your cares upon Him, your anxieties upon Him, because He cares for you. Throw yourself upon God's faithfulness. God is faithful, so believe Him. The promises of God are not only for a people long ago and far away. Christian, you are His family. And His promises are for you. Not just a man in this story in Genesis 13 and not just a, a people far away, but the promises are for you. Listen to Galatians 3, starting at verse 27. For as many of you 
as were baptized into Christ Jesus, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the promise was made to Abram, through you I will bless the whole world, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. That's us. Those blessings are ours in Christ. The promises are not just to a people far away and, and, and long ago, and the promises are to us, but you and I are not seeking a land. We are seeking something far greater. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, this is the whole story we've been talking about and even farther than we've gotten. By faith, Abram, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar." And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like that make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one that we sang about in our songs this morning. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. We are not trusting God for an earthly inheritance. We are trusting God for our adoption as sons. We trust God for our redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You and I are looking to Him for an inheritance in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are trusting the Lord for peace with Him and the eternal life that is ours by faith alone in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are trusting Him for. We look to Him for those things, and He is just as able and faithful to keep His Word to us as He was to preserve the land for Abram, even as it was freely offered to Lot. And then when He worked providentially to take Lot out of frame, He worked providentially even in Lot's own desires and free choice in doing so, God doubled down on His promise to Abram that He would give all the land to him and his offspring forever. God is able and God is faithful to deliver you and me with all our shortcomings and sin. He is able and faithful to deliver all His own to that heavenly land where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Whoever comes to Christ, He will never cast out. He will never lose any, but will raise Him up on the last day. That's what you and I trust Him for. And so we read this story about Abram and Abram's great faith, and it was noteworthy. 
And greater than Abram's faith is the faithfulness of our God. To keep his promises that he made to Abram and to keep the promises of salvation that he made to you and me in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that though we often are unfaithful, we fall into sin, we get confused, we get lost, we go our own way, we do all manner of mischief, and yet you are faithful to your promises. You are faithful to keep them in your Son. You work even providentially, even in the the mistakes, the sins that we've made, the wrong directions that we've gone, yet you are at work providentially accomplishing your good purposes, and, and you are at work in our circumstances, working all things together for the good of your children, conforming us to the image of your Son. And so, Father, I pray for us as we go out from here and as we're tempted to doubt, as we're tempted to fall back into anxiety or, or confusion or doubt or disobedience or frustration or uh, loss of hope, the, any of a thousand things that that can befall us, that we struggle with in our own lives, may we look to Christ, the one who is faithful, the one in whom are found all the riches and glory and wisdom and salvation. And may we find peace and comfort and rest and hope in Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front who would love to pray with you. I want to close this with these words, which I think are fitting. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.